Welcome to the People's Historians podcast with the Zen Education Project, coordinated by Teaching for Change and Rethinking Schools. I'm Rethinking Schools co-editor Jesse Hagopian and host of this series on Teach the Black Freedom Struggle. Today, I'm speaking with historian Kadada E. Williams about the imaginative, defiant ways that Black people sought and enacted freedom throughout U.S. history. We discuss Williams's podcast, Seizing Freedom, which brings to life voices that have been muted time and time again. So let's jump in. We are hosting this session today as part of the Teaching for Black Lives campaign that you can learn more about on the Zen Education Project website. And we offer free downloadable people's history lessons that many of you have used for middle and high school classrooms from the Zen Education Project website. I think we have around 140,000 educators across the country in every state registered uh, at the website already and um, so share share the website and, and the lesson plans now i am really excited to welcome kadada e williams author of they left great marks on me african-american testimonies of racial violence from emancipation to world war one and she's also the producer and host of the great podcast seizing freedom dr williams welcome thanks for being with us Thank you so much for having me and for covering this amazing topic. No doubt, no doubt. I'm so excited to dig into this illegal history with you as it's become in so many states. I think it's now 42 states that have laws and uh, trying to ban history, or I think as you put it before the session started, these, these white comfort laws um, that want to mandate that we lie to kids about structural racism. And uh, I'm so glad that many of us are refusing to do that. And there's a lot of leaders here with us today in that struggle. So I'm excited to dig into this history with you. Uh, and I think it's so incredible that you've started this Seizing Freedom podcast. I've really enjoyed the podcast. Uh, the script writing is so engaging. The the pro, the production quality is off the charts. I, I feel like I'm watching a play uh, when when I'm listening to all the soundscapes and the different voices that bring to life this history of the Civil War, of Reconstruction, resistance to lynching, just the ongoing Black freedom struggle that you that you document so well. And I just wanted to start tonight by asking you why a podcast, right? So what does that medium allow you to do? And, and then I'm also uh, curious if you could comment why this medium would be good for, for educators. How can we use your podcast and other podcasts or, or encourage students to make their own? What, what's useful about it? So I love podcasts, uh, even before I started uh, hosting one. And I think the medium allows you to deliver and receive a diverse range of information. So you've got a combination of scripted narratives like Season Freedom and also arresting conversations with really smart people. 
And I think history podcasts in particular are doing some of the most amazing storytelling work out there. And what we have is rather than simply watching yet another screen, we know we've all been sort of committed to our screens during the pandemic, teachers and students can listen and imagine themselves in whatever time or place is being discussed. And so podcasts, I think, engage our senses and our brains um, in different ways. Like our brains receive and process information when we hear, you know, when we hear the information differently than it does when we're looking at it. So it's slower and I think it kind of sinks in. And so I think a show like Seizing Freedom is a great example of this. We tell a new and very accessible history of African-Americans fight for freedom um, using the mix or using a mix of the best scholarly research that's out there and some of the most engaging stories from the men and women who fought for freedom. And so we've got these letters, testimonies, newspaper reports, autobiographies, and all of these other sources to tell this story. And our voice actors bring these amazing people to life, these stories to life. And students and teachers can listen to the emotion behind the text, right? A self-emancipated man who's asking to enlist like Harry Jarvis, you know, a father um, determined to get his daughters back. And through these kinds of sources, I think that students and teachers can get a greater sense of who the people were you know, who these people were who completely changed the course of American history. And I think teachers can also use class or they can create classroom exercises guiding students into a much deeper analysis of these sources. So we give you a little bit, mm -hmm. but the larger sources are available for examination in the classroom. So that's what I kind of think podcasts do. I love that. I love the what you said about bringing the emotion behind the text. And that's, you know, the textbooks they give us to teach out of are just so dry, right? Even, I mean, for, forget the fact that they lie to kids, right? They're just straight up boring from whatever perspective that they're, they're uh, examining. And, and your podcast really does bring that emotion behind the words, I think, in a way that would be highly engaging for youth. So... I wanted to start uh, by asking more about the master narratives that you explore on the Civil War. You know, these were master narratives that were taught to me and are taught to the vast majority of students, the idea that Lincoln freed the slaves, right? Um, but the reality is, as you say in the podcast, quote, Black people, North and South, free and enslaved were active agents in their own emancipation before, during, and after the Civil War. And so I was hoping you could talk more about how Black people, men and women, participated in seizing their freedom from slavery. Um, but I wanted to just start by playing four short excerpts from your podcast that explain this point and then ask you to elaborate on that if it's all right yeah. with, with you. Excellent. Excellent, because I hope uh, everyone will get an understanding for what a powerful tool these podcasts could be. And we're going to start with Harry Jarvis, who had run away from the Virginia plantation on which he was enslaved. I went to him and asked him to let me enlist, but he said it wasn't a black man's war. I told him it would be a black man's war before they got through. Okay, now we're going to hear from Cornelius Gardner, a formerly enslaved soldier in Virginia. Frederick Douglass told Abe Lincoln, 
Give the black man guns and let him fight. And Abe Lincoln say, if I give him a gun when it comes to battle, he might run. And Frederick Douglass say, try him and you'll win the war. And Abe say, all right, I'll try. Man, I'm glad Frederick Douglass said that. Okay, uh, Susie King Taylor, a formerly enslaved woman who worked for the first South Carolina Volunteers, the first black regiment in the U.S. Army. I assisted in cleaning the guns and used to fire them off to see if the cartridges were dry before cleaning and reloading each day. I learned to handle a musket very well and could shoot straight and often hit the target. I thought this great fun. I was able to take a gun all apart and put it together again. Right on. And then Rosanna Henson to Abraham Lincoln. My husband, who is now in the Macon Hospital at Portsmouth with a wound in his arm, has not received any pay since last May, and then only $13. I have four children to support, and I find this a great struggle. A hard life, this. I, being a colored woman, do not get any state pay. Yet my husband is fighting for the country. Yeah, yeah. So talk about what the what these all represent. So you mentioned the master narrative, and there is this whole mythology about Black people in the Civil War and Reconstruction eras. And it sort of goes that they sat passively, waiting for white people to free them from slavery, that Reconstruction failed. And these are the stories that many white Americans have told themselves and anyone who would listen. But professional historians for the past couple of decades have known that the historical records of the time tell a very different story. And you could hear that in these clips. These are people who did not sit, African-Americans did not sit passively waiting for anyone to free them. They freed themselves. You've got hundreds of thousands of people self-emancipating during the war. They are fleeing bondage like Harry Jarvis. They're showing up in union camps like Susie King Taylor, and they are doing what they can to join the union effort so they can secure their freedom and that of their people. And so, you know, you've got this master narrative, but that narrative serves a particular end. But this story, when you look at the history of the Civil War from the perspective of the Black people who were living in it, who changed the course of American and African-American history through their fight for freedom, you get a completely different, it's not only a more accurate story, but it's a different story. And it's a story that actually makes more sense for understanding the nation at the time and the world we live in today. Yeah, I love that. You know, I, I heard uh, the desertion of Black people from plantations during the Civil War described as the largest general strike in US history. And, and that that's what finally brought the Confederacy that was winning the war uh, uh, down, right? And, and that's not, not what I was taught at all. So I really appreciate that. And everyone should, should check out that podcast episode for sure. And then your work around reconstruction, I feel like is some of the most important and it's, it's become a focus of the Zen Education Project. We just released a report on the state standards on reconstruction that are just abysmal. And so I, I especially appreciated your reconstruction uh, podcasts. And you tell the story of a 17-year-old enslaved person named Mary Armstrong, 
who lived in Missouri, which was a Union slaveholding state during the Civil War. And she got her free papers in 1863, the same year of the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and, you know, targeting slavery in, in states that had seceded, right? So she thought that her mom might be living in one of those states in the Confederacy in Texas, right? And so Mary decided to set off, and you tell this incredible story, uh, to, to go look for her mom. And she almost gets re-enslaved in Texas, but she manages to escape. And so I was hoping that you could talk more about the experiences of hundreds of thousands of freed people during Reconstruction and their quest to reunite with, with loved ones. Uh, and maybe just before you, you say that, we could play a short clip um, uh, about from Mary. In 1865, Mary resumed her search for her mother. I found her in Warden County. Lord me, talk about crying and singing and crying some more. We sure did it. I stayed with Mama until I got married. Whew. Yeah, talk about what it was like to, uh, in this quest to reunite with family. So we know that many families were broken up. Um, after the American Revolution. So enslaved people's families enjoyed relative stability before the American Revolution, but after the revolution, especially with westward expansion, we start to see more and more families along the Eastern seaboard broken up and even more um, as you get more westward expansion and as slavery takes a greater hold. And so families are devastated by these separations. And so it would make sense that they would use the chaos of the war to not only escape, but to go in search of their people. And so, you know, this makes sense when you understand that they didn't see themselves as free or completely free unless their people were free. You know, how can you as a daughter be free if your mother is still in bondage? How is you as a father? You know, how can you enjoy your freedom while your children are still held in bondage? So these ties, that sense of family, this sense of kinship, is what's driving that search for family. And people like Mary Armstrong, they take risky moves. She's a 17 year old girl, imagine it. She takes off, she gets on a steamboat going south. She goes from camp to camp to camp to camp, town to town, working along the way to find her mother. And she's one of those people who actually is able to do it. She had to travel much further and a lot of people have to travel that distance are not successful. But there are many people who are, and it's one of the most, I think for me, it's one of the most amazing stories of the period. It shows that their commitment to them, to their commitment to their people, their sense of their collective freedom and their collective fate, they would be able to make freedom real only with their people. They're not going to be able to do it on their own. They need kin. They need neighbors. They need community to do this work. Um, and so it's one of the many inspiring stories that we tell. And you know, even if they don't have to go in search of kin, what we see is that they're finding new people. They're starting new families potentially because you've got fairly young people. They're meeting up and they're making free lives together. And they're doing what they can to build a new world. But even as they build this new world, one of the most amazing things I think and why we have a story like Mary Armstrong's in the first place is because they told the future generations, they preserved those stories of who they were and they passed those stories on to their children and their grandchildren about who they were as individuals and who they were as a people. 
and what freedom meant to them. And those are the histories that have been ignored or excluded from the mass, you know, as a result of the master narrative of the Civil War and Reconstruction. But they're there and they're available for teachers to use, for teachers to read, for teachers to share with their students, to develop lesson plans, to help understand the world as we know it today. Ah, this episode is just so moving and just puts you in, in that place and helps you think about the emotional weight of searching for a family member, never knowing if you are going to be able to reconnect or not. And, and just the way Black people had to construct their families differently because of this, this oppression. Thank you for, for sharing that for sure. And one of the episodes I most appreciated regarding reconstruction was the episode about literacy and schooling during reconstruction i hope everyone will listen to it in full but it's especially uh important to me be, you know the work i'm doing right now on the history of black education it, just hearing those quotes from people who seeking their education just really brought out as I told you before the session started that that quote from Du Bois who said that black education or education in the south was a negro idea right and that black people built the public school system in the south and I feel like this so vividly illustrated a couple things to me first how despite the narrative that black people don't value education perhaps no one in the history of this country has fought harder for access to it. And, and then second, all these bills banning, you know, uh, history, <laughs> banning the truth, aren't the first time that Black education has come under a sustained assault, right? So what happened, what was the importance of literacy in the post-war South and how did free people pursue and use education? Well, I think it's vitally important and they understand that education and by they mean, but what they mean by that is reading, writing, math, knowledge of the world beyond farms, plantations, homes, and businesses um, where they were held in bondage, that this education, this wider education is essential to their freedom. And what we know is that many of them had been privy to the first education about who they were, about their family history, about local geography, religion, and more. They're not ignorant. I think we need to be clear on that. They just lack formal education and there's a difference. And another quote that Du Bois, um, you know, another statement that Du Bois said is that the white South knows an educated Negro is a dangerous Negro, right? Because an educated right. Negro is always going to resist her and his oppression. Mm. And so, you know, in Du Bois' you know, statement, his follow-up behind that is was, and they were not wrong. Right. And so, you know, That's you know, right. only five states pass laws prohibiting um, the teaching of enslaved people to read and write. And that was fairly late in the history of slavery. But most enslavers denied Black people access to formal education as a method of control to keep them in bondage. But that didn't stop Black people from doing anything and everything they could during slavery to learn how to read and write. And so they self-teach, so they teach themselves, they pick up literacy wherever they can, um, they get formal training, they pass any knowledge they have on to other people. They use their educations to read the Bible for themselves, to read the nation's founding documents for themselves, That's to free dangerous. themselves. 
Exactly, exactly. To free themselves, to write passes for travel, to write passes to free themselves, to escape from bondage, to secure employment. They, they use education in all of these ways. Um, and that's why that value of education is something that exists before the war. And during the war, we see evidence of that by the fact that you've got the establishment of schools in refugee and freedmen's camps during the war. They're not waiting passively for the war to end. They are in, you know, those people who are self-emancipating, they are, you know, you sort of see freedom on the move, even in the camps, the refugee camps where they are, they are in the process of making freedom to the best of their ability wherever they are. That means getting married, that means reuniting family, that means going to search for their people, and it means opening schools to start that instruction process. Um, and so that thirst for education is why you see newly freed people creating schools before the Freedmen's Bureau even shows up. That's right. And I think that's an, it's an important part, you know, that's sort of, they're doing that work themselves. They're paying the teachers with chickens, you know, with hogs, et cetera. You know, they're like, we will build a school, you know, we may not have cash, but we've got these other things that we can provide you. And the teachers are happy to accept that money. And then when the Freedmen's Bureau comes in, you know, what we see is that the free people, they don't surrender their schools voluntarily to the Freedmen's Bureau. They want to say in who the teachers are, how they're going to treat their students, their children, and what they're going to learn. And so what we see is that they're not just interested in reading, writing, and arithmetic. In these freedom, in these freedmen schools, they're learning history, geography, art, mm. literature, right? world history, national history. Um, and so that, ex that education is much more expansive than we thought. And our conversation with historian Hillary Green, who researched these schools, details that. So I think teachers can get from the narrative episodes a sense of the history, and from the interview episodes a sense of the sort of scholarly conversations and sometimes a deeper knowledge of the sort of history that goes into the episode. And so yes. our conversation on camps with Abby Cooper. Abby Cooper is one of the people, is the scholar who found Mary Armstrong's story and fleshed out those details. So if you want to know some of the behind the scenes history, some of the rich your history behind the episode, behind the narrative episode, you can listen to the interview episode because we get into all of that. Yeah, that's great. And I, I love um, some of the discussion too about the struggle over what students were going to learn in those in those schools and the white missionary uh, educators having a very different idea of what it meant to be educated than, than Black uh, educators who came in wanting to empower and weren't shocked that that black people had intellect right exactly right you know you know some of the white missionaries they only want them to sort of gain the basic skills so they can be of service um you know so they can be of service to white people to the nation etc but black parents have a much bigger and much more expansive vision for their children and their future and they do what they can to fight to make that possible. And we see even after Reconstruction is overthrown, even in those schools, you still have until the early part of the 20th century, Black teachers who are teaching this really expansive, rich history. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, I feel like that still hasn't ended, that struggle over uh, what the purpose of education is and the fight for Black education in our buildings. 
doesn't look all that different than some of the the live debates during reconstruction right except we've got the benefit of their experience so we know the kind we know the ways they fought we know the ways they held on to some authority and power to the best of their ability to continue doing that work and we're doing some of the same kind of work today oh that's great so i, I wanted to ask you one more question the episode called walk the streetcar boycotts is just so fascinating and i knew some of the like a broad sketch of some of that but really didn't understand how central uh struggles to desegregate uh public transportation were to early fights in the black freedom struggle because between 1900 and 1910 you talk about how black people were in more than two dozen cities organized boycotts of streetcars as one strategy for fighting against the new Jim Crow laws and for greater access to public life. And when these new laws passed in Houston, I love the story that you tell that the segregated public transportation led to a funny story of a white man who tried to get a ride from a black person who refused him a ride <laughs> and uh so oh, the law he said new law he said i can't take you <laughs> you know the new law says i can't take you right sorry, sorry about that <laughs> sorry man you got to find another way to work right right no doubt yeah but i also love the stories of you know black people throwing rocks at the streetcars you know mm. in protests uh, showing their frustration um, with the segregation, but also their very crystal clear sense of community responsibility and their policing of anyone who stepped out of line, right? You no. cross that line, you get on that, you get on that streetcar if you want to. Problem. <laughs> That's so right. That's right. So create, I mean, just the creativity of the Black freedom struggle comes through in this episode. Uh, so clearly. And so I just was hoping you could talk more about the role of segregating streetcars in establishing Jim Crow and also just about the movement in Houston, but really all around the country and challenging these laws and, and how our understanding of the civil rights movement really is transformed, right? When we think about the Montgomery bus boycott launching the civil rights movement, but very few people know this this history from from much earlier. So I'm going to try to be really efficient um, because it's because it's a little complex. And and what I mean by that is white Americans didn't support or need segregation during slavery. They wanted close, intimate proximity to black people so they could control and dominate them, so they could hold them in bondage, so they could steal their lives and their labors. Emancipation completely changed this dynamic. And the Reconstruction Acts and Amendments during Reconstruction, the so Reconstruction Acts and Amendments give Black people an opportunity to advance. And Black people ran with it. They mm. get educations, they open businesses, they acquire land, they're elected into office, they do all the things. And white supremacists are furious because they had told themselves that Black people were inferior, right? But a few years out of the gate of emancipation, and despite all the white violence and white racist grievance, Black people are still making significant strides. And they're making the kinds of strides that they can enjoy access to leisure, access to, they can buy first class tickets and accommodations. And they can do this while some poor white folks can't. And so white supremacists want none of that. And so we start to see them passing laws 
in these specific places where Black working class and middle and aspiring class folks are advancing and are able to sort of like show signs of significant progress, right? And so they target them with surgical precision and that's where you see streetcars come in. Mm. Everyone isn't taking streetcars, right? Some people, they don't have the money. You think about the cost of public transportation during that time period. These are people with money to take the streetcars, right? And mm. so what they wanna do is limit their access. Um, to shut them out, to make them know their place in the society as below white people. And so African-Americans fight these laws wherever they are, and they see them as violations of their rights and infringements on their dignity, right, in public places that they are forced to take to sit in the back of the bus, et cetera. So African-Americans have been fighting this since Reconstruction, but the Plessy ruling said that states businesses, um, public goods, et cetera, could be segregated as long as they were equal. Mm -hmm. But white supremacists made sure they were never equal. And so if we look at this history of how segregationists built Jim Crow, we also see Black people's protests and protests of segregation and protests of public, segregated public transportation. This didn't start in the 1950s in places like Montgomery. Black people have been fighting since the very beginning. And this is where you get those series of boycotts um, in these cities. And in most instances, the cities just wait the protesters out. Um, but in Richmond, activists are successful enough that they shut down the streetcar company. And I think that, you know, and I think that that's an important. So they did have some victories, but not, you know, they couldn't stop Jim Crow. And it's impossible for them to stop Jim Crow in the South with the vast majority of Black Southern men disfranchised. So disfranchisement happens first, segregation comes, mm -hmm. right? And expands in much greater detail after that. And so what we see is that Black people are not fighting to be in physical proximity to white people. And I think that's an important thing that we need to make clear to people. They didn't believe that white people were magically, in, uh, that they were somehow magical. Um, they knew that physical proximity to white people exposed Black people to violence. Mm -hmm. And so what Black people wanted was for states and cities and businesses to respect the equal doctrine of Plessy. But respecting mm -hmm. the equal doctrine undermined white supremacist ideas of their supposed superiority. So they universally rejected all calls to respect the law of the land, which is that if it's going to be separate, it's got to be equal. And so it's only when they refuse to sort of even do the bare minimum of equality that you start to see Black people pressing for full desegregation. And so I think knowing this history of earlier segregation, earlier fights against segregation helps us understand what happened later on in the civil rights movement. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I just was thinking, did, did the Montgomery bus boycott organizers, were they aware of the victory in Richmond? Virginia, is there any documentation of that that you've seen? Look, I don't know that they were aware of it. They might have been aware of the boycott, those earlier boycott campaigns, and they may have possibly um, sort of learned about them in their schools. They may have been passed down from family members who had maybe migrated in other places. It's not clear that they know that the organizers of the boycott, people like Joanne Gibson Robinson, it's not clear that they, and Mary Fair Burks, it's not clear that they know for sure those earlier histories, but they might have. We just don't mm -hmm. know. Interesting. We'll have to talk more with Jean Theo Harris on that as well. Mm -hmm.
Thank you for joining us today. This podcast is brought to you by the Zen Education Project, coordinated by Teaching for Change and Rethinking Schools. Music provided by The Blue Tide, a Seattle-based acoustic blues duo of Daniel Rapport and J.D. Lenore, a.k.a. Jesse Hagopian. You can find them on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your music. Thank you.